A lot of work to get ready for these Dharma talks. How many of you have ever had instruction on <clears throat> listening to a Dharma talk? Okay, oh, a couple, two, three people. Okay. So I'll fill you in. So... Offering a Dharma talk is a practice. So I'm practicing when I'm in the teaching seat and I'm uh, promulgating the Dharma. But equally, when you are listening to a Dharma talk, you're also doing a practice. So it can be useful to incline the mind to be open and receptive and interested in what's, what's being heard. You don't have to uh, worry so much about trying to remember it or write it down as just letting it come to you as it, as it does. So the strain of like trying to remember it or trying to write it down usually doesn't add too much to the experience. <clears throat> but being attentive and receptive and open-minded, yeah, that's, that's useful, that's good. Last night, Marcia gave a very comprehensive and deep talk on concentration and it, how it fits in with the, the Buddhist scheme of development of the heart and mind. And she, she went into a, a good amount of detail about the interrelationships of different pieces of uh, the Dharma and concentration's role uh, there. So I'm going to give a talk tonight that touches on some of those things again, but probably in a much simpler way. And I'm going to uh, incline this particular talk in the direction of uh, being a practical support to you so that you have both the the deep dharma and also uh, a bit of a panoramic and practical application of some of the information that we're giving you. So let, let me start out by asking a series of questions of you. Uh, <clears throat> so how many of you have done some form of mindfulness meditation, also called Vipassana meditation or insight meditation before? Put them up. Okay. So that seems to be a pretty widespread background for you. And how many of you have done metta meditation before being here? Okay. That's pretty widespread too, but certainly not uh, universal. And how many of you have previously uh, done concentration practice using the Anapana spot? Okay, significantly fewer in number. So that's good information for us to have because it um, gives me a starting point in helping clarify for you the similarities and differences between these particular practices and the similarities and differences in the practice rules for them. I often teach at the Forest Refuge up on the the hill where people go for um, their own retreats. So it's not like a scheduled retreat like this that starts at a particular day and ends at a particular day and has a particular course of training, but rather it's a place for people who are experienced practitioners to go and... um, 
<laughs> get it, get it. <laughs> That's great. It's a place where experienced practitioners go uh, with an idea in mind about basically doing their own practice. So the teachers up there generally support the student in the practice that they've selected and are interested in developing further. And so there's a wide variety of people and practices that, and practice styles that come up to the forest refuge. So I've taken to asking this particular question the first time uh, I have a practice meeting with somebody. And the, the question is along the lines, or questions are along the lines of, what practice, practice are you going to be doing And then the next question is, what set of practice rules do you use? So if you were going to take a look, for instance, right now at what your usual practice is, what would you say it is? Just in your own mind, answer that question. What's your primary practice? Okay, then the next question is, what set of practice rules do you use? Do those pop up easily in the mind? So, I'm very interested in this uh, investigation because what I've seen teaching up there is very often, well sometimes people have a hard time identifying what practice they're doing. But very often people have uh, no, uh, no ability to articulate what the practice rules are. <laughs> so that's kind of a problem if you don't know what game you're playing, right? <laughs> if you don't know what game you're playing, you know, or I can remember uh, reading this uh, interview once with Greg Luganis, the uh, uh, Olympian. And for a long time, apparently, he, he studied both uh, gymnastics, uh, especially on a trampoline, and diving. But he said at one point he realized he was probably going to have to make a choice at least for a while because he started to get like the two of them a little mixed up in his head, you know. And he'd be on the trampoline and be, you know. <laughs> and he realized that that wasn't going to end well. So he says, okay, now I'm going to go for the diving and train my body just, just to, <laughs> to understand that there's water down there and it's clear and it's simple at least for a while. So I want to talk about some of the, the forms of Buddhist meditation that uh, are most practiced and take a look at what's going on in each one of them and then talk about the particular practice rules that uh, we use for concentration practice and how they're different from the practice rules that we use with insight meditation or vipassana. So first thing to say is that all forms of Buddhist meditation are ways to employ or deploy our existing capacities in order to develop further wholesome qualities. So we we take what we already have in terms of wholesome qualities of mind and things like energy and uh, the capacity to direct attention, uh, the capacity to choose intention. We take, take these different resources that we have and we deploy them in the interest of developing uh, generosity, loving-kindness, and wisdom, and other wholesome things, and in uh, mitigating the unwholesome suffering qualities of mind, greed, hatred, and delusion. So all of these practices and techniques have that in common. 
So we start with water, whatever mindfulness or goodwill or resolve, etc., that we have on hand, and then we d- deploy these particular qualities in particular ways. And the ways that we deploy them strengthens them, and that begins to leave less space for the unwholesome qualities of mind. So the ultimate goal of, of all of these, if not the immediate goal of some of these, is the ultimate goal of all of the, this system is the happiness of a wise and free heart, a heart and mind that understands the nature of things and is no longer in a suffering relationship with reality. So that's the big picture of it all. The whole Four Noble Truths, the whole Eightfold Path, all the different ways you can meditate, all the different ways you can cultivate, all the paths uh, of bhavana, the development of the heart and mind, the practice of sila, all of it, it all goes in that, that direction as, as a multi-dimensional uh, package of mutually reinforcing activities and perspectives. And there are a lot of different tools in the toolbox to support this endeavor. So I mentioned the three types of meditation, which are the most common. In the West, probably mindfulness meditation um, is an access point for a lot of people, sometimes taught in a secular kind of setting. Then, uh, of course, you know, it's a a, a derivative of uh, the Vipassana meditation, um, which is uh, a more complete uh, contextualizing of uh, the Buddha's teachings in relationship to uh, practice, with a particular goal that goes far beyond uh, stress reduction as we generally think of it. It's stress reduction with a big S. One translation of dukkha, which the Buddha talks of as being our primary problem to solve, is stress with a capital S, like existential stress. But these, these practices are all tools in the, the toolbox to support this liberative intention and direction. So the two trainings that we're offering here are a direct training in concentration and a direct training in metta. So with the metta practice that that we do every day, the particular goal of that is to cultivate goodwill towards ourself and others and to support the growth of this uh, state and attitude of the heart and mind and to collect the mind in this wholesome state. So here we aren't actually instructing you in mindfulness meditation, insight meditation or vipassana, but it's definitely the case that mindfulness itself is used in concentration meditation. And and the Buddhist actually uh, has a, a teaching that in all wholesome states, mindfulness is present. And so mindfulness is involved in the cultivation of concentration as we're doing here. And indeed, sometimes it can be skillful to actually pick up some of the tools and practices of mindfulness meditation even though we're doing concentration practice, even though we're doing a different meditation. And I'm going to talk in a little bit uh, uh, about what circumstances that might be. But this concentration practice that we're doing is something other than mindfulness meditation. And I, I want to clarify that so that someone somewhere on down the line when... You go up to the forest refuge and somebody, some busybody teacher asks you what practice rules you're using, you're going to be able to just put them right out there. Put them right out there. 
And if you know how to put them right out there, that means that you've remembered them and you've internalized them. And when you're sitting on the cushion and doing the practice, the mind knows the game that's being played. You're not confused about you know, whether you're diving or whether you're on the trampoline. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about mindfulness meditation or Vipassana um, to help tease out some of these distinctions. So you, you may know or that there's a framework of practice which involves the observation or the attending to mindful attention and relationship to the arising of experience at the six sense doors, where you're inclining the mind to notice the change of objects and the change in objects. Does that sound familiar? So the six sense doors are seeing, hearing, tasting, touching, smelling, and then the, the five physical senses, sense base. And then the last of these is what's called the mind door. The mind door. Which is an interesting way of um, holding or grouping many of the things that are most personal to us. Things like thoughts and emotions and intentions and memories and aspirations and you know the five hindrances and the beautiful states of mind and all the rest of that that's all considered to be uh, part of the mind door so the goal of vipassana insight mindfulness meditation at its deeper levels of stress reduction is the liberation of the mind through understanding the nature of things, meaning wisdom, the arising of liberative wisdom. And the, the Buddhist teachings are very clear that it's wisdom that actually liberates the mind. So the practice instructions with Vipassana or insight practice can have a lot of variety in them, all the way from uh, ways of practicing that are very uh, strongly weighted towards, uh, for instance, the mindfulness of the mind and what's going, attitude of mind towards uh, particular experiences, like the Utejaniya style practice, to other, other styles of uh, practice like Goenka style practice that is really oriented towards uh, body sensations and uh, is a fairly concentrated way to practice. But all of these styles of Vipassana practice or insight practice ultimately include everything, includes all of the six sense doors. And, um, and the mind actually winds up knowing and touching and working with and practicing with a whole range of things without there being uh, an exclusion right, of anything. So eventually in insight meditation practice, you, you, you hit it all. Seeing, hearing, tasting, touching, smelling, thoughts, emotions, memories, fantasies, intentions, the whole, the whole thing. Everything that a human being uh, can potentially experience is present there within the range or the realm of insight meditation practice. Now concentration does develop in Vipassana or insight meditation practice and Marcia referenced that last night when she talked about the seven factors of awakening and how they tend to open so insight or Vipassana meditation usually starts with mindfulness as the lead horse, as the necessary primary ingredient, but, but then uh, from the application of mindfulness, there starts to uh, 
open investigation, mindful, mindfulness's function or activity is to investigate immediate experience, to actually kind of look in, into it and see what it is, how it's behaving. You know, what is it? How does it move? How does it change when it's being known in this kind of way? So there's this big investigative uh, part of mindfulness practice that is not absent, but it's muted in the kind of concentration practice that we're doing here. So in Vipassana, you've got the seven factors of awakening, and concentration is the second to the last of these, right before equanimity. Now, in Vipassana, or insight meditation practice, the mind can get very concentrated. It can get incredibly concentrated. Very deep concentration uh, can be present with it. But the concentration is, uh, arises within a practice field where the mindfulness keeps up with it, so that the mind at the deeper levels of practice doesn't lose track of the fact that what it's attending to changes, that things are arising and passing away. So this orientation of the practice to seeing the nature of change is very much its hallmark. Change of objects and change in objects. But the mind can be very, very detailed, very quick, very very present with this noticing of change. Reality can break down to the point where, for instance, the subjective internal experience is very particleized. You know, it's very minute, very microscopic. And that's, that's the experience. It's deconstructed in a certain kind of way. So you can tell from that description that there's a lot of concentration there because the mind has this capacity to really magnify experience, to get in really close to it and see it very specifically and in depth. But Vipassana practice always keeps this orientation to change and noticing change. And then from that seeing of change, the mind starts to recognize, okay, change is always going on. And then it sees, well, none of these experiences that I'm knowing or these things that I'm perceiving are, are steady or stable or they don't, they don't last, they're not permanent. And from that, the other two of the three uh, characteristics start to show themselves and start to see the arising of um, the, the understanding of unsatisfactoriness in the instability and impermanence of experience. And then the understanding, which often opens last, is a realization that nobody's really in charge (laughs) of what's going on. That it's not possible to, in uh, real time, to control what arises and is experienced. That it's arising because of causes and conditions. And seeing those three things in depth and repeatedly is, is very much at the heart of the reframing of our understanding of how things are and is the arising of wisdom. So we start to understand all these ways I've had of relating to things based on these ideas of like permanence and control, they're like whack. <laughs> they don't really work. And trying to do that, do it that way, it's just suffering, it's just dukkha. (coughs) So with the concentration practice that we're doing here, now I'm going to draw some distinctions for you between Vipassana and the concentration that we're doing here. There is a definite overlap, but there are significant differences. So if you remember what I said about Vipassana being practiced with the six sense doors, 
with anything that can arise at any one of them, that ultimately it opens to all of them and you practice with all of them. You remember that piece? With the concentration practice that we're doing here, working with the Anapana spot, we're taking one subset of one of those uh, sense bait, uh, door experiences and working with it. So we're going to the sense door of touch and we're inclining the mind to recognize the sensations of the breath in particular. Right? Like one part of one sense door. So it's a very pared down thing that we're asking the mind to attend to here. So we're practicing only with one part of our human palette of experiences. And aiming mindful awareness just at the breath sensations uh, at the nostrils and upper lip. So in doing this, we're taking uh, a necessary and very powerful element which is crucial to the path of awakening. And we're taking that particular piece and we're saying, I'm going to cultivate this in particular by practicing in this kind of way. Right? So of all the tools that are in the Buddhist meditative toolbox, we're saying, okay, I'm going to pick up one Hmm, it kind of looks like a magnifying glass and a drill. <laughs> it's going to be about what's happening here. So <clears throat> I said that concentration was really important and is one of the seven fa- factors of awakening, right? The qualities of mind that uh, in the aggregate leads the mind towards liberative wisdom. And you could probably remember Marcia saying last night that it's also part of the um, Eightfold Path, right? It's actually the last step on the Eightfold Path, wise concentration, wise mindfulness goes uh, ahead of it. So why, why are we doing this? I mean, what, what is the point of this activity? So we're trying to directly cultivate a mind which is uh, non-distracted, that can focus at will on a single thing, the breath sensations, and become progressively more secluded. I'll put that in quotes. If you look at how the Buddha speaks of meditation at different points in the sutta, Uh, He talks about the mind becoming secluded. And that has a a number of different resonances, but one of them is that the mind is no longer bothered by or swept away or subject to (coughs) what are (coughs) called the hindrances. Folks familiar with what's meant by this word hindrances? Well, I'm going to tell you again anyway. (laughs) Refresh your recollection. So, when these uh, uh, forces of, uh, or patterns of ignorance in the mind of greed, hatred, and delusion arise, they can take many different forms but they can be uh, categorized within a meditative framework as being one of five hindrances, one of five psycho-emotional states that come in and temporarily obscure and cloud the mind. So the first of these is sense craving or sense desire or kind of greedy mind looking for the pleasant. 
The, the next is uh, the aversive mind, meaning anger or fear, uh, anxiety, etc., which is generally a re- reaction to unpleasantness. It's the don't want it mind. If the greed mind is want it, want it, want it, the aversive mind is don't want it, don't want it, don't want it. And then there's uh, sloth and torpor. Sloth being kind of lazy ass and torpor being low energy, dull. Uh, Then there's restlessness and worry where there is energy but it's kind of bouncing, bouncing around, can't settle on things. And then the last of these is what's called skeptical doubt, where the mind just kind of doesn't know what's going on and is unsettled and bouncing around in a hall of mirrors, uh, not knowing what to do, not knowing what it's perceiving sometimes, not knowing what to make of it, not knowing whether to do this or do that. So all of these come up as part of meditation practice, they all arrive uninvited. Now, they're all causally conditioned, meaning there are certain causes and conditions that contribute to the arising of these states in the mind. And it would be possible to do an entire series of talks Uh, like one or more talks on each one of these. But we'll suffice it to say at this point that unwise attention has a role in all of these. They're arising. So say you're sitting on uh, the meditation cushion and you're doing Vipassana or insight meditation practice and then you, you realize that um, you know, the, the mind is, is restless. So maybe you had been working with like the rising and falling of the breath at the abdomen or hearing, but then you realize that there's, a, there's restlessness there and that's become the dominant thing in the mind. So in insight meditation practice, you would actually turn, recognize this is the new predominant experience And generally, not always, but generally, you would actually turn to this state of restlessness and see what it is. Right? You would take your mindfulness and you use it to investigate this new reality that's come in and is kind of blown in like a weather system and is now the thing that's happening. So you'd go into it and see what's it like in the body. Well, you know, it's kind of like, I feel like there's a lot of energy, you know. And then you might look at the mind, you'd say, well, you know, my attention is just like bouncing around from one thing to another thing, you know. It, it's, it, it's kind of like moving all around, it won't, can't settle on any one object. So you're investigating the state directly, right? And at a certain point, either the state would subside or it would weaken, uh, disappear, and be replaced by something else. And then you'd, you'd have a new meditation object, right? Maybe you'd go back to the rising and falling for a while and work with that. Or maybe you're doing a more open style of practice, and then whatever came next you would just work with. Maybe it would be hearing or something, and you would just kind of like be there with that, right? But the mindfulness would be kind of moving from one object to another, as these objects spontaneously uh, came up and became the predominant experience, you would kind of like transplant your mindful attention onto that thing then, right? The thing that was next. So those are the practice rules with Vipassana. This is obviously a simplification, okay? There's many exceptions to this, but this is kind of the, the practice rules. Now, when we're doing the concentration practice, As I said, uh, we've kind of got uh, a particular target to attend to. 
the sensations of the breath at the anapana spot. So the practice rules in attending to the sensations of the breath at the anapana spot are generally speaking not to turn to or not to investigate other arising experiences even if they become strong. Right? So you're not transplanting your attention to those other things that are floating around in the field, you know, whether they're background things or, you know, sometimes even, you might even have the experience of there being like two things going on at the same time, you know, somebody was talking today about, you know, being with the breath, but then there was all this think, thinking that was going on at the same time that they were w- with the the breath, and it was kind of like <laughs> split screen or, you know, simultaneous uh, uh, experiences. And I'm sure a lot of you have had that kind of experience. So here we try to hold onto the breath and not open to the other stuff. If, if that's possible. I mean, stuff still arises and comes in and takes over and is the main thing, right? Right? Or is that not happening? <laughs> <laughs> I thought it might be. I just, I just guessing. So you know, this will still happen. This will still happen. Other things will still uh, come in and become stronger and become dominant. So the the secret with that is the main strategy is when you become aware of that. Is it possible to just let it go? and redirect attention back to the anapana spot, right? Rather than turning to it and practicing directly. So there's a big emphasis in in this uh, concentration practice we're doing of um, letting go of other things. So how we characterize this activity to ourselves can be skillful or unskillful. So if we characterize (laughs) what we're doing is um, I have to be with the sensations of the breath or even worse, they make you. <laughs> I once had the experience of being at a, at some retreat center where I was, I was the teacher, and I, I guess, you know, I must have been a little incognito because I was, you know, just hanging out, having lunch at the table with other people before the retreat started, and some people sat down and they started talking about the retreat, and they said something like, yeah, they make you, you know, not talk, and they make you not not look at each other. And and I said, well, I don't think it's exactly like that. I think it's more like, you know, you get to let go of the the need for social interaction, so you can just focus on what you're what you're working with yourself. But <laughs> yeah, they make you, you know. It's like, it's like we bring our own minds to these things, right? We bring our own minds. So that, um, you know, I get to let go of everything else is a lot different than, you know, they make you just do this for eight days. So consider your framing, your framing of this activity. So to talk a little bit more about some of the the values of concentration, this uh, unified mind that's not distracted... So I talked about how when you can focus at will on a single thing, uh, the breath in particular is considered to be a pretty universal object for people. It's not everybody, everybody, but a very large range of people benefit from uh, breath practice. This is not true of all Buddhist meditation practices, for instance. 
You know, there, there are some practices that, like the 32 parts of the body meditation practice where you kind of got, like, go through a list of different physical parts of your, your body and visualize them that, you know, for some people that would just not be useful, right? But, but practicing with the breath is very useful and it's got some very uh, profound and deep um, rewards to it. So th- this is very interesting, the breath, because it, it's the bridge between our voluntary and involuntary aspects of our nervous system, right? So you can choose to breathe certain ways, right? People who are pranayama practitioners work in that kind of way, right? Like, like they might intentionally choose to breathe like a breath at, of a certain length and then, you know, do a certain kind of exhale and, right? So you can like choose to hold your breath, right? For a while anyway. <laughs> but the breath also goes on on its own most of the time without any, any need for our supervision or even knowledge at all. But there seems to be something very um, beneficial about learning to be uh, present in a receptive, bright way with the natural breath, just letting it breathe itself and receiving that that rhythmic set of sensations that's the exchange between us and the rest of the natural world. It's very healing. And with the mind becoming uh, more and more concentrated, it it becomes secluded. These hindrances that I spoke of earlier arise less often, and in weaker forms, once you've kind of secured the center, <laughs> right? The mind has, has learned to uh, go to the, the attentional center and has learned to rest there. So with this, a kind of calm and tranquility of the body and heart and mind starts to develop. And ease, a sense of ease, a sense of well-being, and uh, pleasure and happiness. And interestingly enough, and this may be hard to believe at this point in your process, but interestingly enough, the Breath itself, instead of being something that we, you know, like need to turn the mind towards and, you know, kind of like stay there and, you know, return there. Once the concentration gets more established, the breath itself becomes very alluring. It becomes very interesting. It becomes very deeply pleasurable and the mind starts to have a preference for this as an experience. This experience of the sensations of the breath and probably more importantly the unification of mind that leads to these states of deep tranquility and rest and ease and a kind of internal contentment that beats anything that you can find in terms of experiences of a sensory nature. So, you know, there's ice cream cones and they're great. But the pleasures of deep concentration beat it. Which is why it would be a fantastic thing, for instance, if people knew how to train this particular quality of the mind, I think there would be a lot less addiction, for instance. Right? Because the mind could find rest and restoration and ease in something that's actually wholesome and beneficial for the whole body-mind system. So when the, when the mind gets very concentrated 
when we we turn the mind to, for instance, Vipassana practice, then when you're noticing the change in things, the mind is very steady and it's very clear and it has this very magnified uh, 3D experience of reality. It's just seeing things much more clearly because the, the lens of perception has been purified in a certain kind of way. The mind has lost its, its perceptual wobble because it's steady, it's clear. It's wieldy and malleable. So you can turn it to you know, what you want to know or what you want to observe. And imagine what that would be like to have a mind that you could turn to what you want to be with, to be present with, and it would cooperate like that. You know, whether that's, you know, being able to be present with a a partner or listen to um, a piece of music or um, be able to sit down with, you know, uh, a book or a piece of research or something and actually be there with it. So there are many secular benefits, if you want to put it that way, as well as, as spiritual ones. But one of the clear spiritual benefits is the mind starts to understand that not all pleasure is uh, sensual in nature and that the inner being or the inner world has places and rewards of its own that are much deeper. There's a kind of inner treasure that's possible, an inner place of protection. So, you know, this, this is obviously a very different direction from the, you know, crank it up, slam it down um, world that we live in. But this is, this is a mind that has found its own pathway to well-being using its own deployment of the resources that it had at the beginning of its journey. So concentration alone doesn't liberate the mind, but it can provide periods of, of respite from the hindrances and can restore the body and mind and, and provide deep rest. And there are many meditation systems in the world, and certainly this was true at the time of the Buddha too, that really emphasized concentration. And the Buddha himself studied in a couple of those and came to mastery of them. But he realized after he had mastered these concentration uh, alone schools that his, his suffering, his existential suffering hadn't been released. So he realized, well, Concentration is good, it's necessary, I see all these benefits here, but it's not liberative in and of itself. And what he did was diff- that was different was he took this very uh, powerful mind that he had, developed at least in part through concentration, and he turned it to the observation of the uh, arising and passing away of things. He started to see into the conditionality of things, like what set of conditions led to what sort of outcomes. So if, if the mind, you know, related to experience in this way, did it suffer? If it, if it related to experience in that way, did it find release? And so, so through that, he came to a, some deep insight into what actually caused suffering to arise. And then in the process, began to to see how he could express his understanding and his own release of mind through a set of teachings, which is what the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path is. It's kind of like a reverse engineering uh, application of what the Buddha came to understand about how suffering is created. Oh, if it's created like this, then it means it can be undone in this kind of way. And so the whole system is designed to do that. 
So let me just give you a few pointers here about this. So I talked about the skillfulness of framing what you're doing as a positive, right? <laughs> and to let go of the, they, they're making me <laughs> mind. <laughs> I will come to your seat and I will see what you are knowing and I will make you be at your nostrils. Okay. <laughs> okay. So there's another piece about and this is a reiteration of something I said the other day, to understand that the process of learning to do this is a process, right? That, you know, just like learning how to ride a horse or anything else, you're not just going to, like, meet your first horse and throw yourself on its back and gallop away bareback and (laughs) stay on there very long. And the untrained mind is very much like a, you know, a a wild horse, a wild horse and you've got no saddle or bridle yet. So, you know, you're going to get dumped off a lot. You just are. So anything that's new, you're going to be unskillful at the beginning. So this is where you really need to call on patience and your own sense of confidence and uh, the form of some faith, right? To continue just to re-engage in a committed kind of way, but not insistent on immediate result. So this calls upon something called beginner's mind. The Zennies talk about beginner's mind a lot, sort of like, well, you know, can you bring like a fresh mind into this thing that's happening, you know, and actually be with what's happening now and work with it as it is. So just in the way I guided you this morning, sometimes if, if things are, you know, getting uh, challenging or you're getting, you've gotten really lost and you're like spun out over s- somewhere, you know, you got to get back on, the, back on the highway, but you might need to call a tow truck, <laughs> right? Sometimes you just can't get out of the ditch directly. You have to, have to take a more circuitous uh, road to getting uh, back on the main drag. So if you have a circumstance, for instance, where the mind is really uh, knotted up or agitated, you, you're you going to need to find a way to chill out. This is what the Buddha said. Just chill out. Just chill out. Find your way and chill out. Right? Because if the mind is like that, if it's really tight or very agitated, your chances of being able to go to the anapana spot with a relaxed and bright and interested, receptive mind are nil. (laughs) When it's like that, right? So you're going to have to do something in relationship to that state if it's staying around for a while. So sometimes that means you might have to actually back out for a period of time and go do something else. You know, go get a cup of tea and stop trying for a little while. You know, just let yourself be, you know, pick yourself up, dust yourself off, give yourself a pep talk. Start again uh, when you're ready, when the mind's settled down and isn't, isn't, you know, so contracted. So you want to reground. You know, if you have the situation where there is, is mindfulness in the mind, meaning you're, you're not totally spun out, and tight, right? You, you recognize you're having an experience and it's a strong experience, it's a dominant experience, but if you were doing Vipassana practice, you would have the ability to work directly with the state. If it's like that and you're doing anapana practice, you're intending to do anapana practice, but this other state has come in and it's around for a while and it's so dominant 
you can't really find the breath. It's just a complete struggle to even like look for it because there's this anger or this sadness or whatever. That would be an occasion where even though you're doing anapana practice and the usual practice rule would be you just let go of everything and you just hang on to the breath. That circumstance would be a circumstance where it would be skillful to actually turn towards that state and do Vipassana practice in relationship to it until it, um, until it weakened and passed away. Right? And until the point where you have uh, this capacity to attend to the sensation of the breath at the nostrils with a bright, interested, neutral kind of mind, right? So you don't want to be trying to slam the mind back on the breath if you've got some big hindrance going on. Because unless you clear that field in some kind of way, you're going to be going back to the breath with that state as part of how you're approaching the breath, right? Say you're really annoyed. So you're really angry, like really angry. You're you're having all these angry thoughts and these strong sensations of anger in the body. And it's like, I'm going to find that breath. I've got to find that breath. I'm going to find that damn breath. You know, I'm going to go to that breath. Okay, that would be an example of unwise attention. (laughs) Right? So that's that's not the... Uh, the mind you want to bring to the invest uh, the presencing uh, with the beautiful breath. Can you see what would be problematic about that? <coughs> <coughs> so if if you've got that kind of thing, you want to work with that directly. If you've got the practice tools for it. If you don't have the practice tools for it, and it's like that, that's a situation where eh, it's probably time to go for a um, walk. <laughs> like a regular kind of walk and just kind of, or go take a shower and have a shower hours or so, right? To do something, do something else so that, that it, you can move uh, the whole body-mind system to a point where you're more in range with the requirements of the uh, task, right? So it's common sense, kind of. So, you know, there are many gray areas, right? But this is uh, where you come to really understand the practice for yourself is by having these kinds of experiences and then coming to these, like, uh, choice points when you recognize certain things are happening and making decisions based on your best judgment about what to do. Understanding that the general principle is one lets go of everything else and devotes oneself to the sensations at the Anapana spot and does that as uh, consistently uh, as possible. So I hope that's pretty clear. And if it isn't, you can ask Marcia tomorrow. And you practice me. (laughs) So I'd like to wish you all well in your own explorations of this art of employing and deploying the many wholesome qualities of heart and mind that you already have. In the interest of cultivating this particular empowerment of concentration. So may you all practice uh, diligently for your own benefit and well-being and for that of all beings. Thank you for your kind attention.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.